All right. I'm in here with my main man, Rory Savajan. You know him as Faded Inc. We're rocking today. How you doing, bro? How's it going, man? Thanks for having me. Oh, man. Glad to have you, man. What do you got? Uh, What's a new uh, product? I just uh, dropped this this week, the uh, Faded. I don't know if you can see with my weird background. The Faded Double IPA, uh, 8.7. I'm not really a big IPA guy, but this is so smooth because it's citrusy. Yeah. And yeah, so it's not like too hoppy, not too too crazy. It's a little hazy, but I, I've been doing good with these, man, this whole week. We we went to canning on Tuesday. So we got I got to see it actually being made. This is our second year doing it. This year, uh last year we raised money for Saints of Steel, which was a nonprofit helping people get back to work. Um before the whole corona thing. This was like just unemployed people, you know. Uh then this year we're doing it for Corona relief. So we're raising money for the PBA, the pro beauty associations, uh, COVID-19 relief, uh, you know, people that were shut down salons and barbershops that were shut down during the pandemic. Uh, the PBA created a nonprofit, uh, to raise money for them. So proceeds of the faded brew actually are going to that. So yeah, that's what I'm sipping on right now. Yeah. What's the alcohol percentage on that? 8.7. Yeah, you don't need a lot of those to get faded. Yeah, this is this is uh That's this is a big like boy. Two, two two and one right here. And this is a what? This is a 16 ounce. So yeah, it's pretty yeah, hell yeah. pretty rough. <laughs> I that's if uh if I'm drinking if I'm drinking I love beer. And if I am drinking beer, that type of that type of IPA is probably my favorite thing to drink if I'm not drinking like whiskey or, or like a gin and tonic. Like that specifically, that type of like big boy IPA, but I've been off booze for three weeks. I'm trying to go until the very end of July. We'll see how I do. Yeah, you doing the, the juice cleanse? What are you I'm, doing? My wife and I jumped on that 75 hard challenge. And okay. then we were kind of like, well, two workouts a day is kind of tough, but I could work out every day. I just don't know if I could get in two, but I could not drink for 75 days. Damn. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm I not drank big... enough during quarantine for everybody, so. A lot of people, alcohol sales went up. Their tasting room shut down, the, the, the Salas Brewing Company, yeah. and their alcohol sales went through the roof because oh, everybody sure. was stockpiling, you know, beer. They were doing pickup and delivery. So, so yeah, man. Let's talk about this because this is interesting. Uh, where's Salas? Are they down in your area? Yeah, they're in Sterling, VA. They're about 10, 15 minutes. They're about 15 minutes from my house. So how did you get into developing a beer? So a lot of uh, craft breweries are very, very similar to craft barbers, right? So they, yeah. you know, you got your American traditional barbers that they're like old school barbers, you know, they're using the straight razor, they're using aftershave and hot lather and whatnot. Um, some of the guys that are making beer are doing the craft brew scene, right? So they got the IPAs, the double IPAs, you know, all kinds of different fruity flavors. And they're always trying to come up with concepts and cool sounding names. And, you know, I cut the owners, right? Yeah, so both, yeah. both, both the owners are, are clients of mine. Um, I originally, when I first opened my location, I was going to open it in the brewery with them because they got this uh, huge warehouse and it's like four bays and it's huge. I couldn't, I couldn't uh, use all that space. It was way too big for me. So I ended up, you know, opening up a smaller place. Yeah. But uh, I told them, I was like, you know, I, I know you're always trying to figure out cool names. I was like, why don't you call it Faded? And it actually, one of my other clients uh, brought me a can from Texas, from a place called uh, Spindle Tap Brewery in Texas. And the can said Faded on there. And so I'm Faded Ink. So I, he brought that for me 
from Texas. And that, that kind of sparked the idea. Then I showed my guys that own the brewery that can, they're like, yeah, yeah, we could do better than that. And so we, we came up with it last year and I was like, all right, let's do this. And we raised money each year. Last year we raised like 5k this year. Who knows what we're going to raise everything. These dudes make sells out. That's so, awesome. Yeah. That's how it came about, man. I actually, you know, I, I call my, my barber chair, my negotiating chair. It yeah. Yeah, when some sitting in that chair and they, you know, I got their attention, you know, that's when, you know, things happen. So yeah, I, I talked them into it. <laughs> so is the beer this year and last year the same or did you, did you change it or? Same formula, same recipe. Uh, only I feel like it's smoother. It tastes better this year yeah. for whatever reason. I don't know why. Maybe it's cause I missed it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Is it a small well, batch? Yeah. You know, I find too with, with, with craft beer, it's almost like a single malt whiskey where, you know, from, you could have the same beer, something could be slightly different and it might alter the flavor that much. And it sounds like it altered it for the better. I mean, the smoother, yeah. the better. Yeah. It's so smooth, man. It's scary smooth. Last year I had seven of these things, man, but it was like during a 12 hour day we were cutting hair. Um, and again, I, uh, if you look back on my Instagram, I got a couple highlight bubbles that say faded brew mm-hmm. or, um, you know, faded double IPA or whatever. And, you could see highlights from last year's uh, party when we were able to have like a legit party and we had the saints of steel um, come out from California. They flew out for it. We were cutting hair all day. It was, it was a pretty wild event. And uh, this year was kind of weird because it was like half capacity, just got into phase two the day before. And, you know, there was not as many people there, but it was kind of cool. We cut some hair, you know, so uh, we got some teas. People love the, the faded teas. Any, you know, thing that's like uh, repping like different beers, people are into that. So, yeah, yeah it does well. You know? you're, so you're in D.C.? Yeah, I'm in Northern Virginia, right outside of D.C. So, like, they call it the DMV, right? Like, you know, right. New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut is like the tri-state area. Well, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia, they call it the DMV. So, Virginia is not... Like, Virginia's pretty big, but, like, Northern Virginia is just outside of D.C. We're about right. 30, 35 minutes west of D.C. Okay. Yeah, and then Baltimore is about an hour north. Correct. So that Correct. probably, that and the surrounding area probably really kind of caps off what people consider the hardcore DMV, I would imagine. Yeah, Maryland, D.C., and Virginia, the DMV. Yep. So what's the, what's the vibes like right now in terms of – uh, the coronavirus and getting back to work and just moving around like in general. So it's weird. Like uh, my shop, we shut down on St. Patrick's day and I was actually out in uh, Delaware getting ready to teach at a Paul Mitchell school in Delaware. And the night before the class, I had two classes the night before they had just canceled the NBA. Okay. And then the next day, the following day was my classes and it was on St. Patrick's day. And Maryland and Delaware both declared a state of emergency. So I called my wife. I was like, I'm coming home. I'm not going to teach these classes. We're going to shut down our shop. Let's see what's happening. This is kind of crazy, right? We got, we shut down March 17th and we got, we went back just recently, man. Like phase one for us was like a week and a half ago, I think almost two weeks ago. Okay. And we just went into phase two Friday. And I think if everything goes well, we'll go into phase three next Friday. Uh, but it's weird because, like, they were behind. Like, Maryland shut down before Virginia did. Virginia shut down, like, a week and a half later, almost two weeks later. 
Uh, and I know up by you that you guys just finally got a chance to open back up. Yeah, so Massachusetts was interesting. We opened up – last week was my third week back in the shop. It was the second week in my shop. Mm-hmm. The city where I cut Somerville delayed the opening for one week. Uh, the after. mayor the, – yeah, the, after everybody else in the state. The mayor didn't feel that the state guidelines were thorough enough or that everything was too mm-hmm. open for interpretation. So we put a little group together and – I actually served on the group to advise the mayor's office on like some additional things that we could do. So we kind of had to lobby to get ourselves back open. Uh, The thing that was positive about that was the mayor said, I want to work with the community to get you guys back open. But the funny thing was, is like, we were all kind of like, yeah, the the state already said we could open. So just let us open. (laughs) But the mayor just wasn't really going for it. So we put a couple extra things on and and he let us, he bumped us up. He was going to put us in phase three. He ended up just bumping us up and let us open a week later. So it wasn't the end of the world. Um, right now we're cutting with, uh, masks, new gloves, every cut, and then you have to be able to change, uh, a smock or an apron every cut. So for whether you or for the guest, uh, well, fresh cape on every guest. Right. Right. So every, and then for me, um, in our shop, we've done two things we've done. Uh, we bought like a surplus of disposable aprons that you'd wear like in a kitchen. Uh, you could, those are single use. You could throw it out. What I did was I got tired of that. I bought four new smocks. And what I've been doing is disinfecting them and that, yeah. And then every single client, and then at the end of the day, it goes home and goes in the wash. I bring in the other two. So I do two one day. I totally disinfect it, let it sit, put the other one on. So, cause I just get tired of the aprons. Um, How many chairs is in your shop? Seven. So you got a big place, man. I'm just one guy. Yeah. You know, my, my wife, I have a private studio. So at Faded Dream Studios, you got my chair. Then we have a sliding glass door that separates the barber side from the salon side. My wife has her salon side where it's just her. She's got her own shampoo sink and her own little, you know, one single room. And then on the other side, we have an education space, which is like a big wide open room. With yeah. a sta- we have a stage and we have a couple stations there, but we only have one girl working in there. So we're all in our own individual rooms. Yep. And, and it's, it's, it's not like, you know, a walk-in style place. There's no storefront. You know, we're on the second floor in a private building. We're a private studio. Everything's appointment based. So that put us at ease. Uh, number one, we didn't have to lay anybody off. Yep. Number two, we didn't have to figure out who's going to work what days. And, you know, if it was too many people. Uh, we never had that issue because it's just us, um, right. which I know uh, other people have had challenges. I know people are building plastic uh, or plexiglass partitions. And- yeah, dividers and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen that. For us, we got seven chairs, but there's only four four guys in the shop right now. So everybody can maintain six feet of distance. And in our state, they said, you can have as many people in the shop, you know, one guest per service provider at a time but you have to be six feet away from each other and your clients have to wait outside. They can't wait in the waiting room. That's what we're doing. We're having them text us and then we'll let them in. Like we'll text them. It's okay to come in, you know, after we sanitize everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the, the space, you know, we can't book as tight, you know, like a a schedule. We have to leave at least 10, 15 minutes in between so that we can spray down our chair, you know, sanitize everything, sweep everything, uh, I was doing rubber gloves, the real tight ones. The loose yeah. ones are not – they're really not good for cutting. No, um, you have to wear them like a size small. Yeah, the tight ones you can get in there. I don't like grabbing hair and cutting hair with gloves. Uh, I know some barbers were doing that before. 
so, you know, I've been doing hand sanitizer and washing my hands and not touching nothing. And I'm yeah. actually not even wearing gloves anymore. I started out wearing gloves. I started out with the little surgical mask and a cloth mask on the outside. Um, now I'm just down to um, the surgical mask, but it's like an N95 mask. It's, it's a little bit better. than How, the How's the comfort of the N95 mask? It, there's a couple different types. The one that we have is kind of pointed. Uh, that's, you know, you can bend it because it has that metal strip in it that you can form around your nose and your face. Yep. Um, so that one's a little bit better. But I'm going to be honest, man, it sucks cutting with a mask. It's uh, You start getting really hot and, you yep. know, you're working working so it's like you're breathing in your own breath the entire time and it's 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 a pain in the ass i can't wait till the person leaves and i actually can pop it off my face for a few minutes i i got these from rei they're called a buff it's just like a um it just looks like like an infinity scarf and i just put it around and then i can just pull it down and wear it around my neck in between and pull it back up yeah so i've been doing that and then uh and then i've been doing gloves and i don't like wearing the gloves but i do find when I go home at the end of the day, my hands feel better because even, even before this, I was constantly washing my hands in between every client. And I think just constantly washing your hands after a while, it kind of drives them out and yeah. I'll, I'll go home and I'm like, my hands don't feel that bad. And then the other funny thing is I haven't worn a smock in like four or five years. I've just been wearing a t-shirt. <laughs> so now yeah. I'm going home and I'm like, yo, my clothes aren't like destroyed anymore. <laughs> so it's, yeah. it's been a little, it's been a, I don't know, dude, I don't, I don't like it, but I don't want to get anybody sick. No, exactly. You don't want to kill no. anybody. You know, you don't want, you want to slow it down so we can figure out and let the scientists and doctors do their job. Um, we have a washer and dryer on site. Yep. So, you know, we're constantly rotating out new capes and towels. And, um, you know, I wear my jacket, you know, uh, it's, I've gotten used to it. You know, it, it took me a little while, but once you go through the motions, you yeah. kind of get a routine down. The clients are super cool. You know, I've gotten, really good with uh pulling down the little strap behind the ear and working around the ear yeah i know some guys are like using clips and hanging it behind the neck so that's another thing they can do um i've actually know, somebody... used a comb to oh really it. yeah yeah just but then i that's found a... on a hot day even though we yeah. have the ac on it starts the mask starts sliding down but yeah. it's only for like two minutes while you get the sideburns on the front lineup it's fine. yeah it's fine yeah. i i hold it and i just cut i hold it with one hand and i cut and then i put it back on it's not that bad. That's not um, bad. I'm, I'm excited for us to go into phase three. I think phase three is when, when we don't have to wear masks anymore. Um, okay. So we'll see. I think that's next Friday for us. Uh, now, are, are cases dropping in your area? I don't know if, if you know. So, I mean, it's all bullshit. The, you know, there's no yes. viable data. Like some, you know, there's spikes. Like I remember I was watching the news and I saw all these spikes. Oh man, Memorial Day weekend. Oh, there's so many cases spiking. It's like, how the hell do they have that data when it takes time for to get the test results? Yes. Right. So how much of that is real data and how much of that is like fear mongering from the media? Yes. You know, so, I mean, I, I was freaked out in the very beginning, but as times went on, you know, I start to like lower my guard a little bit and, and I'm not as crazy anymore. Uh, I don't know, man. It's we we're at we're at the mercy of of what happens, right? We can't yeah. really control this. Like it's know? it's so. been confirmed to me from medical professionals who I I have cut that they are overdiagnosing um, and overlabeling deaths as coronavirus. Like someone could have yeah. stage four cancer, and they yeah. come in and they pass away this month. But if they somehow contracted coronavirus like symptoms, yeah. Now you had the coronavirus. Yeah, you know, like I'll tell you an interesting one. My grandmother's ninety two. 
Uh-huh. She had it and beat it. She's yeah, in an assistant. Too. Yeah. She's had an, a, she's had every health problem you can have in the book. <laughs> so, yeah. It's, so it's amazing that she's still here, but so she had some, she had sniffles. They tested her. She tested positive once. Mm-hmm. Then they tested her again twice and she didn't have it. So I'm like, did she really have it? Like, yeah. and I'm not saying she didn't. And if she, if it tested positive, then okay, I'll go with that. But it's like, no one else in the nursing, in the assisted living that she has tested positive except for her and two of the workers. No one died in her in her assisted living. Mm-hmm. She had it and beat it. I it's just I don't know. Like it's, it's some of the stuff is just starting to not add up, you know. And every it's, it's it's definitely real, but it's like the 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 amount of people that actually die or the amount of people that you know have really severe symptoms are very few. My, like my my aunt Carol in Jersey, she's a nurse. And so she got it as a nurse in the hospital. She came home, gave it to her husband, gave it to all the kids. My 90-year-old grandmother lives with her. And so the only symptoms that they got, they all got it. The whole house got it. And the only symptoms that they had was they lost their sense of smell and taste for a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I was freaked out because like your grandmother, my grandmother's had every health issue known to man. And she's still like a Russian tank. She's still surviving somehow. Yeah. And I was like freaked out. I was in tears the whole day. I was all upset because I was like, I'm not going to be able to see her again. Because think about it. If she would have got it, she would have went into the hospital. Well, she did get it. If she would have had severe symptoms, she would have went into the hospital. They would have put her on a vent. And then I probably would have never got a chance to see her again because I'm down here in Virginia. I can't go anywhere near there. They're not letting anybody in. So it's like I was freaking out for like 24 hours. Yeah. And uh, and then she was fine, you know. And, you know, it's just crazy, man, because – Again, you know, if you watch the news and you're sitting there looking at mainstream media, you're going to think that it's the end of the world, right? And Of course. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know so, man. So let's do this because I feel like everybody's probably sick of talking about coronavirus at this mm-hmm. point. We're all just living through the, the end of it. Well, what is hopefully the end of it. I want to – I got a bunch of stuff I want to talk to you about, but I want to take it back to the beginning. Okay. Because – so I know – uh, you served in the military. Yeah. And I know you've been cutting hair for a long time. Oh yeah. I know you do education. You got a you got a big following on Instagram and you've been around for a minute. So why don't you why don't you take everybody back and kind of tell us the story of how you got to where you are, how you got started in hair, you know, like what whatever it is that you want you would want people to know about you. I know that's kind of loaded, but you know, you can just floor is yours uh, and just go for it. All right. So um, like many barbers, uh, I was fascinated at a young age by barbers and how they did their thing. When I would go to the barber shop, it wasn't appointment based. You know, you would sit on a bench, you'd wait your turn. And, you know, during that time, you'd see people walking in looking terrible and then leaving looking great. And I was just sitting there watching the whole time, fascinated how a barber can make somebody change in their appearance, but also their confidence. And I'm, I'm talking about, I was like, I don't know, 10, 11 years old at the time. Uh, my grandfather used to take me to the barber shop when I was a kid. He would go to his guy and I would go to the other guy. Or if his guy was open, I would go to him. Um, it was these two little old Italian guys uh, named Gregory and Dennis. And this is around the early 90s, like, you know, late 80s, early 90s. And so I would sit there and watch. And these guys didn't even speak English. Like, they barely knew English but they would cut hair like all day long. Everybody would go in there, you know, we'd go to church and then we'd go to the barbershop. And so by the time I was 14, my aunt Carol bought a set of clippers for my cousin Anthony and I stole them. 
I took those clippers and I cut him and his two brothers and I started in the house. My grandmother used to do like, you know, haircuts in the house. She would do color in the house. So, you know, once I got those clippers in my hand, I started cutting him and his, his brothers and he wasn't going to use it. You know, I was the artist, right? I've always been into graffiti, always been into hip hop, always been into drawing. Um, so clippering and barbering was something that I gravitated to right away. Now in high school, I went to a tech school. I got kicked out of uh, regular high school my freshman year for fighting. Sophomore, junior, and senior year, I went to a tech school where you would learn a trade. And they had um, cosmetology. They didn't have barbering. They had cosmetology. And I was too shy to be like the only guy in the class. So I didn't take it. I ended up doing graphics uh, like your man, Ryan. And right. I, learned, I learned graphics and, you know, graphic design. And I ran a four-color printing press. And, you know, I used to do silkscreen shirts and stuff in high school. Um, my barber at the time needed business cards. Okay. And so in exchange for him to show me how to use a razor and show me, you know, shear over comb and teach me how to cut and cut my hair for free at the time, I made him his first set of business cards. Now, the guy I'm talking about cuts Jay-Z. He cuts Pharrell. His name's Johnny. Um, he goes by Staycate on Instagram. And he cuts all these icons in the industry, but he was my barber first. So yeah. I made him his first set of business cards. And this was like in the 90s, man. I want to say like maybe 92, something like that. No, you know, my bad. It was like 94, 95. And on the top of his business card, it said beeper number. Okay. Because he had a pager. That's how, how far back I'm taking it. And so by the time I was uh, 17, I left to the Navy. And in the military, they teach you how to pay attention to detail. But there's zero detail in the haircut. You know, one side's higher than the other. There's no hair. Then all of a sudden there's hair. You know, there's no blend, no style. It's just maintenance, right? So I hated that. I hated how the military barbers cut hair. I didn't, I wasn't a barber in the Navy. I had a, a top secret clearance. I dealt with intelligence. But the ship's barber heard that I was cutting guys in the bathrooms. So he decided to give me the keys to the barbershop. So now I'm cutting guys on my ship in the barbershop on the ship. And word got around that I was good and that I cared. I took, you know, I took pride in my work. And so then I started cutting all the officers, even the captain of my ship. Okay. It was a small ship. We were stationed in San Diego. And even though I was in the military, I was still cutting hair. Fast forward. I used my GI bill to pay for hair school in New Jersey in 1986. They did away with the barber license. You had to go to beauty school and get a cosmetology license. And the school that I went to had been around, there was a little mom and pop beauty school called Parisian Beauty Academy. And it had been around for 30 years. One of the barbers that I looked up to um, went to that school and got his license. A lot of barbers in New Jersey don't have licenses. You know, they're cutting hair illegally with no license, okay? Or they have their aunt's license on the wall or something like that, right? Um, one day, and I did that for over a decade. You know, I, I didn't right away get my license. I was cutting hair since I was 14. So I started in 93. I cut hair for 11 years with no license. Anytime somebody came into the barbershop that looked like state board, I would sit down, act like I was waiting for a haircut. Yeah. When they would leave, I'd go back to work. You know, and so one day they did come and they find three of the barbers that worked in my shop, Main Street Barbershop. Uh, they find them $250 per person, first offense. Second offense, if you got caught twice, it's a $1,000 fine and up to 30 days in jail. Yeah, in New Jersey, you can go to jail if they keep catching you cutting hair with no license. 
So I decided to use my GI Bill. I went to Parisian Beauty Academy. The year that I went, it became a Paul Mitchell school. And so unwillingly, unknowingly, I ended up being thrown into the beauty world, right? The hair industry. And I got to understand, you know, how big and powerful and, and how much money was in it and how, how many opportunities and the network and, you know, the products and just the, the hair shows and everything, the guest artists, the motivators, the, the mentors, the speakers, right? So I was fascinated by all this. You know, I was a terrible student. I uh, didn't care at all about beauty and about, you know, working on a doll head. All I wanted to do was clock my hours so I could go back to work legally with a license. Uh, about a month or two into school, I won a contest called Beacon. And Beacon is like this big beauty contest for all beauty schools across the country. And the year that I went, they picked 150 stylists. I was the only barber there. And I made a video showing all these barbers in my neighborhood that I looked up to uh, and what, you know, why I was in the industry, what it meant to me, right? And so they picked my video. They flew me out to San Francisco. Uh, you know, here I am, this kid from New Jersey, never been really anywhere aside from being in the military outside of New Jersey. And now I'm, I'm about a month or two into beauty school. I win this contest. Now I'm getting to meet all these icons. Uh, you know, I mean, you name it, man. Every, every Sassoon person you could think of. I actually, it was a funny story. There's a guy named Christian. And a lot of people may not know who he is, but people that are like really into hairdressing and haircutting specifically, uh, credit him for being the first uh, hairstylist to actually cut women's hair with a clipper. Okay. And so he did some radical stuff back in the day. And so here I am in, in San Francisco, it was uh, 2004. And I'm sitting in the hotel lobby bar and I see these two dudes sitting at the bar and I'm like, man, these guys look crazy. One guy had an orange camouflage jumpsuit. And I'm like, I got to go talk to these guys. The other guy was, he was a little shorter, a little older. And he had uh, a, a, like a really nice suit with like a little scarf around his neck. And so I'm just shooting the shit with them about, you know, style and whatever. I'm sitting there. About an hour later, I'm sitting in the front row in the auditorium. And now come both these same two dudes. And it was Vidal Sassoon and it was Christian. And I was blown away. I felt, I felt like the biggest dumbass in the world. Because here I am speaking to like the Michael Jordan of hair at the hotel lobby bar. I didn't know, I didn't know who he was. And so he, they're cutting this cake for a lifetime achievement award. And I'm sitting in the front row and it just blew my mind to the possibilities of, of what the hair industry can do. And I learned barbering and fading from barbers that I looked up to, but I really learned customer service, product knowledge, um, tools, you know, consultations, booking. I learned all that in the beauty industry. I learned all that in Paul Mitchell. You know, and I was pretty ignorant, you know, before I went into all this. And in beauty school, you know, it kind of opened my eyes for the first time onto how big and, and, and powerful we really are in the service industry. So I, I felt like I had an advantage. I felt like I was more dangerous uh, knowing um, cosmetology and all of the things that work in that world and then bringing that back into the barber world. So I got out of school. Um, I actually got recruited by a color specialist, uh, the, the color director for Paul Mitchell, uh, Colin Caruso. He has a salon called Carew in Hoboken. And this thing is immaculate. All they do, they do a lot of color, right? High-end color. And you walk in there, it's on the second floor building in Hoboken. Uh, they've got blow dryers that come down from the ceiling, all white leather furniture. Everything's 
beautiful, immaculately clean. He's got a floating fish tank hanging from the ceiling. And I was struggling because here I am a barber. I don't, I'm not really good with long hair. And the first day he gives me a girl that has hair past their niece that I got to blow dry. Right. And I'm used to working with short hair. So I'm freaking out. One of the other stylists helped me out. I ended up lasting there two weeks and I ended up quitting because now I'm, I'm an assistant. I'm not making money. I'm learning. I'm on the bottom. And I have all these people hitting me up for haircuts. I used to make money, you know, illegally cutting hair. Right. So I went back. I went back to that and I ended up going back and uh, going back into the barbershop. And so I gave up hair altogether in 2006 and I decided to relocate and move down to Virginia. So I left New Jersey. I came down to Virginia and I was shopping in the mall. I couldn't get a job. I was like driving a forklift, loading trucks in this warehouse. Uh, I was going to work for this company uh, to do contracting IT work with my top secret clearance from the Navy. My buddy was going to hook me up and I'm walking through the mall and I see the Paul Mitchell sign. I said, oh shit, let me go buy some shampoo. I walk in there and it turns out it's a big beauty school, corporate school, brand new. Everything was immaculate. The admissions leader comes up to me. She grabs me. She gives me a tour. She shows me around the whole place. At the end of the tour, she says, what do you think? I said, man, it's a lot nicer than the school that I went to. She goes, what do you mean? I said, I graduated from Paul Mitchell in New Jersey. She's like, what do you do? I said, I'm a barber. She says, we don't have anybody that can teach that. She's like, we don't have anybody that can teach that. Would you be interested in maybe coming in and doing a, a demo for us? So I had never taught a class before. So here I am on a Monday morning. I pull up one of the students, one of the future professionals out of the crowd. I cut his hair and they went crazy. They offered me a job on the spot, but I didn't have enough hours. I only had 1,200 hours. In Virginia, you need 1,500 hours. That's crazy. That's crazy. So, I, so here I am. I got this great job, but I don't have enough hours to even get a license in Virginia. So what did I do? I ended up getting hired. I ended up clocking out. I would work double. So I'd work all day and then I'd clock out and I'd clock back in and I did 300 hours of school. Took my written test, took my practical test, took my instructor's exam, went through all the levels of certification and color and texture and you know everything, cutting for Paul Mitchell. And I say that to say this, when you're a barber, and especially back in the day, nowadays, it's more readily available. You got YouTube, you got all these shows, you got all these educational classes popping up, these underground hair events, right? But back in the 90s, like the early 2000s and like, you know, the late 90s, there wasn't any of this, right? You had to really, really dig and look and look up to somebody to learn your skill set. And so here I am going through all these things. And I felt like I was way more dangerous because I knew stuff that barbers didn't know. I understood technical hairdressing. I understood how to use scissors and not just cut sheer over comb, but how to layer hair, how to graduate hair, how to do all these different things, right? And how to actually have nicer tools because now I'm going to hair shows and I'm seeing all the different vendors and different platform artists, right? So I'm blown away by all of this, right? And now I'm actually learning how to be an educator. So I'm actually certifying in Paul Mitchell training where I'm going through, and it was brutal, man. I mean, you'd have to get up there in front of, um, you know, the success coaches, and they would sit there, and they wouldn't say a word. And you'd be up there for 35, 40 minutes doing your whole lesson, and they'd be just looking at you, writing stuff down, looking up at you. And there was nobody else in the room. You're, like, talking to yourself, right? And then if you failed, you'd have to do it all over again. 
And it was a bunch of criteria. You had to jump through a bunch of hoops, right? You had to do actual haircuts on dolls. And so um, I say that to say, you know, it sucked. It was tough, but it makes you more dangerous. It makes you stronger. You know, you, you, you have that discipline. Working on a doll head sucks, but guess what? You know, you're not learning how to do cool cuts on a doll head. You're learning different techniques and you're combining those techniques in order to achieve different effects and a different look on different types of hair. So I'm starting to learn and uh, more about hair and what it will and won't do. And, you know, I'm learning, you know, the different types of hair and, you know, the different formations of hair and, you know, different products. And, and I'm learning how to use a blow dryer and I'm doing all these things. And so I'm, I feel like you're never done. There's never any there. You're always learning and always growing. And I think the moment you think you're there, you're dead. Now, how so, long, how long did that go on for? You said it was 300 hours, but how long did that take you? So I started in 2006 as an instructor and I certified through all the levels of Paul Mitchell to the point where I made it onto the advanced Academy where now I'm actually training other instructors, right? That was over shit, man. It was almost a decade. It was 06 wow. to 2015. So I was there for four, I was there nine years, almost 10 years uh you know training as an educator and actually helping other educators you know follow the guidelines and and you know yeah. get them to where they need to be you know and you were getting heavily critiqued that whole time by like the success coaches and, and oh, things like yeah. that yeah i mean dude one time i was in the middle of a certification training and you know when you get stressed out um you you can you can actually make yourself sick you know like sure. just yeah. just from the stress i actually gave myself a, such a bad migraine during during an, uh, a certification that I went blind in my one eye like I completely half of the room just went dark Whoa. and they call it an optical migraine but it's due to stress like when you when you get severe stress you know you can get severe headaches and migraines and this specific one actually I lost all the vision in my right eye during a certification as I'm trying to certify um and anyone that- before the vision came back it, I had to go in a dark room for like a few hours for it to come Ooh. back Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah. And anybody that suffers from optical migraines or migraines in general kind of knows what I'm talking about. But um, yeah, it was so stressful, man. Uh, but after you were done with it, you felt the sense of accomplishment. Right. Yes. And anybody that actually went through it, you respect them even more because you know what it took. Uh, and it wasn't easy. And, you know, nothing good is easy. Right. Everything that's hard is is not going to be easy. It's going to take time and it's going to take effort. And, and I think that process is more valuable than actually getting stuff handed to you. Yeah, you know I mean? definitely. If you had to compare that to the level of stress that you endured during boot camp, which I'm sure was, was probably shorter, but more intense at, on a consistent basis, how would you, how would you compare that? Uh, if if um, there's a comparison it's hard to compare because one's more voluntary and one's not like once you're, right. you're enlisted, it's like, you have no choice, right? You can't just not do it. You know? Yeah. Like, you can't really, you can't really leave. Uh, boot camp for me, I think, you know, there was, it's, it's crazy, man. It's like, it's, it's very similar to jail, right? Because you're, you're, you lose all your rights. You know what I mean? Now you're government property, mm -hmm. you know, and you do as you're told, right? And it's kind of like that in jail. You really can't do what you want. You're, you're at the mercy of the jail, right? So it's it's crazy because they're trying to break the civilian out of you, right? They're trying to get you to think and move like a machine. And so you you start to develop that. Physically and mentally, it's kind of tough. When it comes to 
to the certifications, you know, especially with like Aveda or Sassoon or Paul Mitchell, it's stressful, but it's only stressful if you don't give yourself enough time to prepare. I always felt, I always felt like if I, if I like half asked it and I didn't give myself enough time, then it was really stressful. But if I really knew it inside out, I'd go in there and I would dominate it. You know, I'd go in there and I I would, I wouldn't be stressed out because I owned it. Right. And, And I think, that boils down to something that I talk about all the time, which is having the mindset of an owner, you know, ownership, right? You know, when I teach a class, there's three steps to my class. The first step is the education, the lesson, whatever that is, right? Whether it's a fade, whether it's, you know, scissor work, there's a lesson there. There's, there's, there's the knowledge, right? The second step is application, getting your hands dirty, using it and doing it, right? That's the second step. The third step, is repetition doing it over and over and over again until you own it otherwise you don't own it and that's why i say have the mindset of an owner because if you're prepared you have ownership of whatever that is you know you feel more confident like now you know dude i used to struggle with haircuts when i first started it would take me forever i was super slow i didn't know what person in my chair wanted i didn't really know how to communicate what they were going for you know but now i'm like on autopilot because i'm doing it 27 years you know, so when I do stuff, people like, they're like, you make that look so easy. I go, yeah, because I've been doing it for a long time. You know, so it's that repetition, right? It's yeah. That, it's that muscle memory over and over and over again, you know? Um, and again, you know, you still evolve, you still grow. But I think people nowadays have a sense of instant gratification, right? They want everything right away. They don't want to put in the work. They don't want to pay the dues, yep. you know? And, and to be honest, people are able to excel a lot faster than before because they have so much information available to them, right? They yes. can see, they can study and seek things out and copy and mimic things and do things that took me years. They can do really in a few months, yes. you know? So uh, I think the quality of education is way better now than it was before. So that also has a, you know, an evolution, you know, as we evolve, you know, we're able to do things that we never thought in the past we could do. Yes. Right? So we can push those boundaries. I've, I've seen guys that have been cutting hair for, you know, a year and a half, two years that are cutting, uh, like they've the been cutting for 10 years. And it's like, right. wow, how did he, uh, I do find sometimes you might get into one of their haircuts or whatever. And you as a person that's been cutting hair for 20 plus years might be able to pick up hard a couple of things that might be a little bit not nuanced or whatever, but it's like, yo, compared to how I was cutting at that phase of my career, you're this dude, it's a beast. If they keep progressing, I, I do find sometimes with like, um, we talk about how people want the instant gratification. Now, sometimes I feel like people, they get, they get to where they should be in six years and two years, but then the progression stops. It's like, I've got it. I've got it figured out. I don't need any help. And it's like, no, dude, we, we always need, we always, I, I just still feel like I don't know anything. I'm always learning, man. I'm constantly looking at other people's work, you know, social media, people get caught up with likes and follows. And to me, it's really, it's a reflection of what you're putting out there, but it's also gaining inspiration. Yeah. You're showcasing your art, you're showcasing your work, but you're also gaining inspiration from other people. And so I think because of that, you know, people have been able to grow really quickly. I think a lot of barbers, uh, once they get good at barbering, and they see their cuts look good, and they know how to take a nice picture and stuff, all of a sudden they're like, well, now I should be an educator. And yes. it's like, it's, it's like, a different dude, thing. It's a completely different thing. You know, 
yeah, you can be good at your art. You can be a great artist. But to be able to deliver that to somebody, to be able to break that down for somebody that's brand new and somebody that's an expert takes a certain type of uh, skill set. You yes. have to be able to have, uh, not only do you have to be able to be good at public speaking, but you also have to be good at getting out of the way and showing somebody how to do something versus just being an artist and creating. You have to know why you're doing it. You have to know how to do it. You can't just show it. You know, yeah. and I think a lot of people think that's the next step in their career. I know a lot of barbers ask me about being an educator all the time. And it's like, if that's something you truly want to do, you need to study people that are educators. You need to, you need to go to a school. Yeah. You need to learn how to actually present. You need to yeah. have, you need to have it so well down, like so nailed down that you can do it in front of an audience. You can do it and field questions at the same time. You can do it and be on a time limit. You know, and it's not as easy as it looks. And I think that's like what people think is the next step in their career. And it's like, not everybody should be an educator, man. Just keep cutting hair, maybe open a shop. Nah. Maybe, you know, not everybody should own their own product line either, right? All these guys yeah. trying to put, put their name on something. And it's like, you know how hard that is? Oh, I don't think people understand the, specifically with products, as a person that's owned a streetwear company before, how, what it takes, especially when you've already got a full-time job cutting hair to take your product line to a level where you're going to profit off of it. Right. Um, you know, a guy up here locally, Rocco, he's the co-owner of over the top barbershop. He's got a product line called uplift and he's uh -huh. doing very well with it now, but the amount of, it's like he has two full-time jobs, like yeah. he's cutting in the shop a lot. I don't know exactly how many hours at this point that dude spends more time like he will drive to your barbershop two hours away to deliver your first uh initial shipment of product and it's right. just like well today i'll be in western mass and he's got one product line you know so, it's not like he's a distributor who's carrying paul mitchell he's carrying unite he's carrying this and that he's got one thing you know so it, it, and i it's just it's so much it's so much money it's so much time it's so much overhead it's i want such say, a commitment steven i want to say to anybody that's listening to this that actually is considering or even thought about making their own product line, just know this, okay? What makes your product, this is the question you have to ask yourself. What makes your product different? What is it special about your, what's special about your product that somebody's gonna choose that product outside of your barbershop? I get it, you have your own product line in your own barbershop. Again, it's another revenue generator, right? I get that. But what's gonna take that to the next level? What's going to get somebody to say, I want to carry that in my shop versus the major corporations that have fulfillment centers and distribution where their margins are so low. Okay. I mean, they're so, they're so small. Their margins are so big because they have so much uh, already. Uh, how do I say it? They, they can order such high volume. Yes. Okay. That their margins are great. Right. Versus when you have such a small run and you're a small, you're a small fish in a big pond. Right. Right. And you're trying, you're trying to make your product line in order for you to scale it, in order for you to be able to have wholesale accounts, in order for you to be able to take that up a notch, you got to order a lot. Okay. And who's paying for that? Who's, who's putting up all that money. And then what happens when it sits, right? And what happens when you're only selling it in your shop and then people don't really want to carry it. Maybe you get some, how are you competing? Are you buying a booth at a trade show? Are you going up against L'Oreal and all these big crazy companies, Con Air, Babilis? Are you going up against all them? 
You know what I mean? So yeah. I just say people, you know, it's cool to have your name on something, but what makes it different? Why is somebody going to take that versus everything else that's out there? Yeah. And, and get, oh, I'm sorry. I mean, to cut you off. No, you're good. And, and to get back to your point about not everyone having to be an educator, I feel like, and you tell me if I'm wrong, when uh, Barber Battles and Smaller, the first before Connecticut Barber Expo got big, when um, Curtis Smith was doing the exotics, the, the exotics hair tour, the, the big thing at that point was to win a Barber Battle. To be right. a, to be the hot barber battle. Now the barber battles, they're they're still there, but it's not the now. I, like people kind of look at barber battles like, how are you doing a barber battle? Like it's it's very passe at this point, and yeah. I think that got replaced with I'm an educator, so it became the new status thing. I'm so good at cutting hair that people pay me to teach them because I'm so good at cutting hair. Right. But really, the, the the educator thing is not new. Right. It's not new. It's been there forever. And it wasn't always a glamorous position. It was just, Dude, it's just another job in the industry. It's an industry there's, job. There's nothing glamorous about getting up at five o'clock in the morning, going to an airport, flying somewhere, checking into a hotel. Okay. Getting ready to teach a class, going to bed, doing the same thing the next morning, maybe two, three classes, then hopping on a plane or actually taking a taxi back to the airport hopping on a plane, taking a taxi or Uber from your airport to your house, getting some rest or going straight into cutting hair behind the chair yep. in the shop and being completely burnt out uh, mentally, physically, you know, uh, people don't see all that. They see the five, 10 minutes that you're on stage. They see the Instagram post and they're like, Oh, you know, that's, that's what I want to do. Yes. And it's dude, you, you don't want to do that. <laughs> like you just, real, real education too, is not necessarily, well, there's different people that do it different ways and that's great. But like right. in that classic sense, like you just talked about, which is what yeah. I really look at as education. Um, uh, I think a lot of people, especially guys a little younger than me and not all of them, say I, I'm cool I got the look I got that I got that current barber look in five years ago that look looked different right mm -hmm. it always changes and right now these guys are the guys that want to be educators and it's like I'm gonna get a bunch of other guys in a room that look like me and want to do the same haircuts that I want to do but you're not really teaching people how to build a career and how to really cut hair you're showing them some haircuts uh, you're showing a lot of heavy texture but you're not really showing somebody real technique really how to like do things like the right way behind the chair. So I, I think the educator thing, I think there's like novelty education. And then I think there's like real core foundation education. And I, I think the novelty stuff will always, there's always going to be somebody doing it and, it and it's great. And I think it's, I think if you enjoy it, you should go out and you see some barber coming in that's teaching a class, even though he yeah. might not have the background that you have. Um, or somebody like Billy who worked at Sassoon for 10 years as an educator. I, you know, like that to me is the person that I want to learn from. But then if there's some barber coming in from somewhere that you think is interesting and you want to take that class, it's not that you shouldn't, I'm not trying to hate on anybody, but I think, I think it's really important that people understand the difference. Well, I think the main thing is where's the value. Yes. Are you giving, are you giving value to somebody? If they're paying to take your class, Okay, or they bought a ticket to a show and they're taking the time away from whatever else is going on at that show to sit in your room in your class. What value are you giving that person, right? And now if somebody already is hot shit and they, they know everything already, you're not really going to give them any value. 
okay? But when you're dealing with people that are open-minded and, they, and they're looking for, like, you know, different things that maybe they don't do, I always say that I don't teach people how to cut hair. I expand the way they look at hair cutting. Yeah. You know, you know it's, it's a different thing, right? It's like everybody knows how to cut hair, but what is it that they can take away from what you're showing that gives them value, right? So there's a difference between uh, an actual educational class where you have a live model, you're going through the motions of, you know, the very beginning, step by step to the style and finish. And then you're fielding questions, right? And you're doing a little Q&A and you're trying to figure out, are you touching everybody in the room that may have something that they were, you know, confused about? Or, you know, maybe they do it a different way and they wanted to ask you something specific. Are you able to field those questions versus the platform artist versus the person who's up there you know, doing some wild stuff in a few minutes and, you know, they look cool, they dress cool and the haircut's kind of funky, you know, that's a whole different thing, yeah. you know? So people get confused. They, they think that the next step in their career is educate, be educator, right? But they really want to be platform artists. They want to yeah. be, be somebody that's on stage with, for maybe an endorsement deal with a brand, you know, or they want to do um, some really wild stuff like, I, you know, Billy, we, when we did that thing in Florida, man, to me, that was super dope because it's like we're up there, we're listening to the music and we're up there creating. We're, we're, it's more artistic. We're not up there on the microphone talking. We're not there, you know, uh, giving out any education. But what we are doing is we're in our zone. We're in our element. It's very artistic. We're creating mm -hmm. our we're creating our art. Right. That's platform artists. That's platform work. There's no real education there. It's, it's more of a show, right? And it's more creative. How do you take somebody that, you know, wants to do that, but then you put them in a room full of people that have no idea how to cut hair, okay? And they're asking you very foundational, basic questions, right? And then you have that one senior person, maybe it's in a salon, and you have that person that's been behind the chair for 30 years, and they're throwing questions at you, not because they want the answer, they're throwing those questions at you because they want to test you. They're they breaking your balls you. a little bit. Yeah. They're breaking your balls, but they also want other people that's in that room yeah. to be like, yo, that guy ain't all that. Yep. I know it. I'm yep. the star. I'm the star in this room. I, I've been doing this forever, and I can teach you better than he can. Right? You have yeah. that person. So you yeah. got to be able to feel that. You got to be able to, to be able to um, weather all of those things. Right? You got to be able to dumb it down for somebody and give them value, but you also got to be able to to put people in their place, so to speak. Like when somebody tries to throw you a curveball, is it because they're being genuinely curious to that answer or are they trying to let people know that they know, right? Yeah. So you have those people in the audience too, man. Um, I think that, you know, the best value I can give somebody is if they wake up the next morning a little more dangerous because they got to hang out with me for a little bit. I like, I like the term you keep using, dangerous. Yeah. All right, you're winning me over with that one big time. I, I like that. I like yeah, that. Man. I, mean, I like excitement in hair, in hair cutting. Dude, I mean, if you learn a technique and you use it the next day in your shop on a guest, you've just become more dangerous. Yeah, hell yeah. You, you know, you, you're, you're a little bit better than the day before. Kevin Hart, the comedian, says, you know, um, if he says something or, he, you know, you take something away from it and you wake up the next day, you know, uh, a little bit better than you were the day before, that's what it's all about. Right. And I agree with that. I think that's yeah. the whole point. What value are you giving the people in your audience, especially if they're paying you money, you know, for that class or that yeah. show, you know? 
uh, I have a lot of um, uh, pride in what I do as far as like, if I don't, like I record, like I'll, I'll put a camera up on my iPhone on a tripod and I'll say, you know, I have a script. I go through, you know, my class, right? I know what I'm saying and I have it down to a timing, but I want to be better. You know, I want to be able to speak better. I want to yeah. take something that hit, you know, that was like that, 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 you know, that, that like if a stand-up comedian was on stage and they said a joke and everybody laughed, that's, that's that one uh, part of the, 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 the night that they're going to try to use in the next show and then the next show and then the next show, right? That's that gold. And you're looking for those little moments of gold where now you can dial that into your, your, your routine, your, your set. Hi, baby. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like I constantly record myself because when I get on a plane or if I'm in the hotel room, I watch those videos and I, I'm like OCD like you are with a haircut. Yeah. I am the same way with that presentation. I want to be better. So I'm watching all the things that I did well. I'm watching the things that I'm like, eh, maybe I don't do that again. And it makes me dangerous, man. It makes me stronger because I'm dialing it in and dialing it in, dialing it in every time I do it. You know, it's like going to the gym. You know, you're yeah. putting those reps. You know, it's just comedians call that working out. I, I look to stand-up comedy uh, a lot because they're master communicators. Yes. They can control a room. They can get up on stage, just like we do when we teach a class. We get up on stage and we're talking. How do you captivate an audience? There's a rhythm there. There's a cadence. You know, you have your punchlines, just like you have in a stand-up set. So, yeah, every time I teach a class, whether it be for three people or 3,000 people, I'm working out. You yeah, know, I'm, const I'm, I'm constantly going through the motions, and that you trying do this that for, new material. Yeah, I, I'll throw jokes in there that suck, and nobody laughs, and I'm like, all right, I can't do that one again. Yeah. You know, yeah. but then I'll throw something in that works, and I'm like, yeah, that's gold. I'm keeping that. You know, I, <laughs> you it's know? funny because I'm not as experienced in education as you, but I've done a, a fair my fair share. And when I used to go out, I used to be kind of like, I don't want to repeat the same thing I did in the last class, and I, and then it, it's kind of like it's the same approach that you have to take to haircutting at the end of the day, you probably as a barber have like five haircuts that you do and then you tweak it to the person, but you cannot go out there and treat every class. Like it's a unique snowflake. And it's like, you have to have your foundation for how you're going to approach it. Let me you tell know? you something. And, and to me, I'm going to go out and approach it. I've had this conversation with Evan a lot where we, you know, we were doing a class together and I said, listen, I have to go out there and teach this class. So I, if there's a hundred people in the crowd or there's 10 people in the crowd, I'm still going to do this the same way that I'm going to do it because I don't know what to expect from them. I don't know how long she's been cutting hair, how long he's been cutting hair, what he wants. I just got to do my thing, you know, like, and I want to make this repeatable. So Repetition. I, I, I've been doing it for a while and I've broken it down to like, I have like five, five types of classes that I do. Okay. Um, you have the barbershop class where you're in a barbershop and you're in front of barbers and you're teaching that, right? And that's like its own special thing. Then you have a salon class where you're in front of stylists and you, you're teaching it a little bit different because you're in front of stylists. Maybe they want to focus more on the, the clipper work. You know, they, they're good with sheer work, but they want to focus more on fading, right? So that's a little bit of a different type of class. Then you have a barber school or a barber college which is, you know, younger generations of barbers, yep. uh, bigger audience, you know, you have more people in the room, uh, you know, you want to be respectful to their educators, you know, there's certain things that you do. Same thing in a beauty school. Again, just like the salon world, it's a little bit different. The language is a little bit different. 
you know, uh, so those are four different types. Then you have your hair shows, right? Your, your main stage or your, you know, booth or your private classroom shows, right? That's a whole different thing. Like at BarberCon New York, they give us, I think it was, I want to say it was like 15 minutes, maybe 30 minutes max to do a class. And you're on stage yeah. with, with two other educators and each person has this talk at, this, at the same time. So now you're cut down, you know, you, you cut that down to a third, right? So how do you give your point that wasn't just given by the other educator five feet next to you? You know what I mean? So there's, there's different uh, dynamics to it, right? So I've done all of these. So I consider it like five different classes, right? But say I do a tour. Say I do, say I come out to mass and I hit like three barbershops and two salons and maybe a beauty school and I do six classes, right? And I'm doing this all with Hattori Hanzo, right? I'm, I'm rocking with the Hanzo sales rep. We're going out, you know, we're talking about shears, you know, we're talking about the value of the different shears and the different tools and techniques, right? That sales rep that's rolling with me has heard me spit the same exact class somewhat. Yeah. Like a, bro like a broken record, okay? Where even me, I'm like, I've done my class thousands of times and I hate hearing myself say the same exact things and it kind of mind fucks you a little bit because you're like oh dude i don't want to i just said that like an hour two hours ago at the salon now i'm at this barber shop you know but at the end of the day you can't you have to assume that everyone in the audience has never heard any of it yeah and that's how a stand-up comedian does their their set they're telling the same jokes imagine how boring it is for a stand-up that's using the same material night after night two shows a night, different, whatever, different cities, but it's the same script, right? I'll, I'll do you one better with the stand-ups. So not only are they doing that, they're working out three to five nights a week, whatever they're doing. They've also got a podcast now and they're kicking those same jokes on the podcast because I've seen comedians do that. I'll listen to the podcast. Then I'll go see them live four months later when they're in Boston. And I'm like, I already know all these jokes. You've been kicking them on your podcast for the last four months. I compare you know? it to hip hop too, though. So yeah. you have you have an MC that's gonna kick their written, and then you have an MC that's gonna freestyle, right? So when you're kicking your written, you have your bars that are written, but then every now and then you'll throw in a freestyle, right? Right. And that's and you do that for two reasons. You don't want the monotony of of doing the same thing over and over again. So you throw that freestyle in there because you want to break it up a little. Yeah. Plus, you want to test new material. You want to see if that works. Sometimes it falls flat on your face and it sucks. Sometimes you hit it out the park and you keep that. That's why I go back to what I was saying earlier. I videotape everything. And then I sit there and I watch and I critique myself. I become OCD like I'm cutting hair. Only now I'm looking at my presentation skills, my public yeah. speaking. And again, that's how you become dangerous. Yeah. I, I, I would say for anyone that wants to get on stage, the best <laughs> class you could ever do is a public speaking class. I think everyone should take public speaking, even if they're not going to be a public speaker, because it's the number one fear that most people have. I study stand-ups. I look yeah. at stand-up comedy. I watch how they present. I, I, you know, I can name off a hundred stand-up comedians that I just love how animated they are, the cadence, the rhythm, the delivery. Who's you know, your favorite and, right now? Oh man. You know, who's sick? Uh, Sebastian. Yeah. You seen, that He's guy's, great. That guy's great. great. He's so good. The, He'll, 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 he'll be talking one way and then he'll slow down. And then the way, he, you know, he's Italian. So he, he'll yeah. say things a certain way. And then, you know, it's just so good. 
Um, he's great. Uh, Kevin Hart. I mean, just incredible. Amazing. Th- these, are, these are people that you can just listen to. Like Joe Rogan's podcast, I think, is awesome. Yeah. I'll listen to all the people that he has on there. That guy, Andrew Schultz, is funny to me. Uh, there's so many people on there that maybe they're off color, off, t- you know, they're a little crazy. But I like that, you know. I Honestly, um, I think that, you know, I'm from the early, you know, well, shit, I was born in the seven, late 70s, but I consider yeah. myself like an 80s, 90s kid. Um, Same. It was a lot rougher growing up. It wasn't as soft as it is now. It wasn't as PC. That's and so I, I gravitate towards that style of comedy, like the Dave Chappelle, you know, yep. people like that, that they don't really give a shit. You know, they'll say some raw things. You think um, about the it, fact that Dice, Andrew Dice Clay sold Dice. out Madison Square Garden. That would never happen today. No, no, exactly. No chance. Right. Like, it, and I'm from that era where it was a little rougher. There was no like bullying. You got your ass kicked. Like, it wasn't like, oh, you know, don't bully somebody. Like, it, it was the opposite. Like, you, you didn't say shit, and, like, it was rough. Yeah. But now it's so soft that I'm like, you know, I, I look to those people that they can say off-topic things, but they're given so much value. You can tell good versus evil. You can tell that they're genuine where yes. you let it go. The people that get hung up on the little things and they get – somebody – I actually read it on Instagram today. They said uh, it was something like the more sensitive you are or the, the, the more things affect you or hurt you, the weaker you are, Right. And people don't have as tough skin as yeah. they used to. So, and, and I'm not saying this like I'm some crude, you know, asshole on, on stage. I, I'm very, very humble, very chill when I speak. But the type of comedy that I like, the type of, you know, personalities of people that I like are the ones that there's no real filter. You know, you can tell, yeah. like with me, my wife says my best attribute is my also my worst attribute where you can tell 24 hours a day, no matter what's going on, how I feel. Yep. I can't, there's no lying in me. I'm like, nope. you can see it all over my face if yeah. something's bothering me. I can't, I can't fake it at all. So it's a good thing and a bad thing, right? So like people know I'm pissed off at the shop and she's like, you know, that's not professional. And I'm like, I can't hide it. Like, you know, that's and- just who you are. I, I, I mean, you could not smack the person that's pissing you off. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, but it's like, what are you supposed to do, man? Like, yeah, yeah, human beings. Like, I'll be professional ninety-five percent of the time. If you're one a positive, time this dude's just forcing if, it. If you're a positive person and you're super energetic and you're very positive and happy all the time, the moment that you're not, everybody picks up on it. Yep. Everybody yep. sees it, and that's my biggest downfall. Is I'm I'm always very positive. So the few times that I'm not, I get crucified. Because, yeah. Because yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> oh man. But yeah, so uh, I don't know where I left off. I know we jumped around a little bit. Yeah, um, hell yeah. That's but... what we do on this show. My favorite <laughs> my favorite comedian's a Jersey guy, Joey Diaz. Joey Diaz, Coco. That guy's Coco. a nut. He's a nut. Amazing him... storyteller. Yeah, and he, and and he's just so he doesn't give a shit. He's no. he's older he's older than me. So he's like a generation before me. So it's even rougher. Yeah. You know, like Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, I, and I, I like, you know, I like hip hop. I'm I'm you know, I'm not into this new kind of hip hop. I like the old school hip hop. If you come to my shop, it's only you're gonna hear '90s hip yep. hop. You know, uh, you're gonna hear MCing. You're gonna hear thought behind the words. It's gonna be lyricism. You're not gonna hear this like zombie rap that I call it. You know, that trap yeah. music. I, I don't do all of that, but 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 I, I'm not into that. Are you doing any like any of the new New York shit like Griselda? 
honestly, I'm so out of it. I don't uh, know. Like, I, I need to get up on all that. I'll I, send I, you. I'll send you some stuff, man. There's been the last few years, like new that New York hip hop that you and me like so much is is back. Like, you got Rock Marciano, um, Freddie Gibbs. I mean, he, th- those two guys have been around for a while. But then, like all like West Side Gun and Conway, and then there's just there's all these kids coming out. I'll send you um. I'll send you this YouTube page. It's for Top Shelf Premium, which is a, a vintage shop in Hoboken, and the owner's a hip-hop fanatic. And he puts out all the new MCs. He does this video series called Off Top Freestyle. Uh-huh. And then I guess he sends all the new music to Rosenberg. So if there's a new MC that's coming up, he he's the guy that Rosenberg finds out about it from for his mix show. So, like, I, I've been getting put on to, like, so much new shit. I just found a guy called RLX, you know, like the old polo line. Um who else was I listening to? Eddie King. You gotta, Rome you gotta hook me up. You yeah, gotta I'll, hook me up with all that because I'm so off. I'm, I'm I'll get 40. You up. I'm gonna be 41 this year. I have no clue. Like I, I used to go to Fat Beats. Okay. Yeah, like, me too. In, when in I was New in York. the city, I would. Yep. I used to buy mixtapes. All right. Yep. I used to do all that stuff, and and I was heavy into hip hop. At one point, I thought I was gonna be a rapper back in the day. Believe it or not. Oh, I, I did it. <laughs> and, and and I never got like I got on a few mixtapes, local stuff. Never got nothing crazy. And then I ended up going into the military and barbering. And, and you know, I used to do tattoo work for a while. And uh, so I've, I've shifted gears all over, but I could never get away from barbering. Yeah. That, was always, that was always ingrained in me. And uh, I'll tell you what, it's crazy because, you know, as an as a owner now, right, I have my own studio with my wife. Uh, I feel like, you know, you have two types of rich. You got money in the bank, you know, you know, uh, dollar signs, right? Your account, how big your account is, how much your net worth is rich. But then you also have people rich. Yes. And as barbers, I feel like I, I, I consider my chair like the, the mafia. I have a guy for everything. You know, when somebody sits in my chair, he's a plumber, he's an electrician. Right now in my backyard, I got three guys out there painting my fence and doing patio work and like doing sanding and stuff. These are guys that sit in my chair. Yeah. You know, literally right now, if I went outside, I'd show you the, if I brought the, the, the computer out there, you'd see people working behind my house right now because I, I have a guy for everything. Right. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm people rich. You so I, th- I think barbers are people rich. I think, um, you know, people want to take care of their barber. People love hooking up their barber. You know, I, my plumber does my toilets and all this stuff. My sinks in my shop were installed by guys that I cut my flooring, everything that you yeah. can think of. You know, so I always say, you know, we're like the mafia barbers. You know, we got a guy for everything. Well, you I, have I to, man. <laughs> it's it's funny because then my network of people are other types of people that have a guy for everything. And I'm, graphic, gonna, I'm the guy that does that. Yeah, you yeah, I got a graphic, graphic design, design guy. I got yeah. trainers. I got restaurant people. If I, and you if feature I, them on your podcast. Now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty cool. I love it because I don't want – Um, this is a trick podcast. It's, it's a hair podcast, but – we haven't really talked about hair. We've talked about business, career paths. We've talked about hip hop, the current climate. Now we're talking about something that's very important, which is your your uh, your human net worth. You know, they say your network your network is your net worth. Yeah, and that's yeah. really that's important to me. You know, it's not yeah. important to everybody, but it's important to me. Dude, you know, real estate agent, yeah. financial advisor, got that. Yeah, accountant. All of these yeah. are guys that I cut. 
right? Yeah. So it's like shout to them because again, they come to me, they want to look good. They want to, you know, I give them that confidence to go do what they do. But at the end of the day, they always take care of me and things that I need. That's outside of my wheelhouse, outside yeah. of my world. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, I, love a, it. it's we, we, I feel like barbers, number one, you can go anywhere in the world and, and make money, provide yep. for you, provide for your family. And you, you know, everybody you're, you're that pillar of the community for real. Like it's, it's, they used to say all the deals would happen. I remember back in the day, especially in Jersey, you'd have the mayor, the police chief, the fire chief, all sitting playing chess or dominoes or cards in the back of the barbershop, you know? And it's like, it was that place that everybody, no matter what level or what career, blue collar, white collar didn't matter. They all needed haircuts. And we, we are that person that provides that. Right. So we are legit people rich. What part of Jersey did you grow up in? I'm from North Jersey. So okay. I grew up about 10 minutes out of uh, uh, Manhattan, uh, you know, George Washington Bridge. Yep. So you got Lincoln Tunnel is like down by Hoboken. You got George Washington Bridge, which is North Jersey. So you got Fort Lee. I was born in Teaneck. Okay. And I, went, I went to high school in Hackensack. So Bergen County. And okay. It's about 10 minutes from Yankee Stadium, right across the bridge into the Bronx yep. uh, on the other side of the Hudson River. Right. Okay. So got, okay. Got, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly. I know what you're talking about. I spent because I have friends in Jersey City and Hoboken. But then when I was doing more hip hop stuff, I was in um, I would be in Tony Bennett has a studio. I think it's in. I want to see it's in Edgeworth, and I'd go Englewood, over there. Englewood, Edgewater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ingle. It was actually in Inglewood. That's right. Yeah. And then um, I was working with Tame One from the Artifact, so I spent a little yeah. time around around like Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Yeah, Teaneck. He, he lived in Teaneck, and then um. His man had a tattoo shop in Elizabeth, and that's where they used to do a lot of stuff. We do photo shoots at, at the tattoo shop and stuff. So I they like Jersey. There's parts of Jersey like Patterson and Newark that they're like way worse than the most worst parts in New York. Yeah, and it's like, but then you also have like the suburbs and like the rich upscale parts where like Jay Z lives, where it's like the people that have made it in Manhattan and Brooklyn and New York, they go and they buy property in Jersey. Yeah, right. It's just over the bridge, over the, in the tunnel. Like Johnny Sack on The Sopranos. Yeah, you know, um, where they filmed The Sopranos was probably like 10 minutes from where I live. But that was in a nicer area because Tony yeah. and them, they had money. North Caldwell. <laughs> yeah, they were in uh, Upper Saddle River. My brother still lived there. I got a bunch of family still there in Paramus. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, yeah. um, I all the rappers from New York ended up moving to Jersey, too. Like, yep. They got the whole cams out there. Jim Jones, Jewel's, and he's locked up right now. But their studio, the Dipset Studio, is right across the street from my grandmother's house. Oh, sick! Legit, yeah. I used to see them with all these wild cars, all these pink vehicles and stuff, yeah. right outside the studio. Yeah, man. That's dope. Yeah, in New Jersey's got a crazy hip hop, crazy hip hop history. A lot of people, man. A lot of people. Queen Latifah, you know, Whitney Houston, Naughty, Naughty by Nature. Yeah, there's a Red lot man. of. Red man, yeah, he's one of my favorites. Well, it's it's interesting too because I feel like the quality of hip hop from New Jersey and from Long Island is not any less than what you would get from the actual city of of New York. I feel like when you would get the Long Island groups, they tend to be a little bit more bugged out, like De La Soul or whoever. And then New Jersey definitely had its own sound, definitely kind of a little more gritty a lot of the time. I feel like Jersey was like they're not a borough right so it's like right. the, the fifth borough the sixth borough right they're just like staten island like the wu-tang thought that they had to come out harder because yeah. of that they had to compete harder because they weren't manhattan they weren't brooklyn they weren't queens they weren't the bronx so it's almost like they had to go even harder 
you know, just because. And um, yeah, that, that, that's definitely true. I left New Jersey. I moved down to VA right outside of DC because I was just like, I couldn't deal with the, the, the constant aggression. Like it was very aggressive up there, you know, and yeah. I, I'm a dad now I have kids, you know, so I want to raise them in a good public schools. And, you know, I, I don't, I, I just couldn't see them growing up the way I did. So I left, yeah. you know, and yeah. you could call me whatever you want. But at the end of the day, I was like, you know what? I recognized that where I'm from is, is a little more aggressive, a little more hard. And I didn't want that for my kids. So yeah. I moved, I moved down South. You, know? you get the and, same thing in Massachusetts, you know, where I live, like there's a lot of small cities and then there's Boston, of course. And, you know, you could, uh, a lot of, a lot of people that grew up in the city or whatever, end up moving out. Cause they, they kind of want to get away from it. You know, they got, you know, all, all the same things that hit all the people in cities and like, you know, depending on how you're living, I think the smartest thing you can do is just do a total change of scenery, you know? Dude, it's rough because I'll tell you right now, I came to, to this area with nothing and nobody. I abandoned everybody I knew, everything I knew and came down here. And yeah. that was not easy because again, it, you know, most people that live in an area, they live there their whole life. They never leave. And so to, to go out and, and leave your whole family, everybody you know, the whole lifestyle that you know, the good bagels, the good pizza, all the good food. Yeah. And then, and then come down here where it's like suburbs. It, it, it was scary, but I look back like, damn, man, where did the time go? You know, I'm down here now, you know, and it's like I don't have the same aggression or, or you know, maybe paranoia that I did. Sure. And when I go back home, when I go visit my family, I, uh, I see that. I'm like, Jesus, man, like, this is what I left. I'm like, I look, I look at it like, whoa, you know, nothing has changed. Like, the, I see the same people doing the same things. And it's super crazy. Everybody's got some crazy story of how they're, they're you know, in trouble or something happened. And I, I'm like, I don't see any of that anymore. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm disconnected from all that. Yeah, and, you did a uh, whole, like a whole disconnect and a whole restart and got yourself to where you should be, you know? I come down here though, Stephen, and I, and it's like, I can't hide it. Like, I don't sound like I'm from Virginia. When somebody speaks to me, they know right away I'm not from here. Yeah. You know, and it's a different kind of vibe down here, you know, like this is a little bubble. You know, the top five richest counties in the U.S. are right here. You know, there's a lot of money down here, a lot of military people, a lot of government contractors and IT workers, uh, Amazon, Apple, all these big corporations are down here. And I'm like the outsider. I'm the outcast. I got tattoos. I talk a little different. Yeah. But, but you know what? I think that's why people come to me. Honestly, it's like it's almost like opening a pizza shop. In, in a place that doesn't have good pizza. You know, I opened yeah. a barber, barber studio in a place where they don't have good haircuts, you know? You're and 100% so, offering something that they couldn't get from somebody else right now. That's a fact. Yeah, it, it's a destination, right? I don't even have a storefront. I don't have no no signage. No, I love like, that. I'm not on a strip mall with a bunch of, like, Starbucks and stuff. People come to me because they either know somebody directly that I've cut or they've heard of me. And they're looking for something specific. I'm not for everybody. Maybe my price is more than some other places. But at the end of the day, when they come to me, their time is their time. And I always stand on my work. Anything that I put out there is going to be, I give you my all. Yeah. And I, I think that there's a, a lot of people that, you know, when you're working in, I've worked in different types of shops. You know, you have the high volume, you know, turn and burn. Like how many yep. people can I get in and out? And then you have guys like me that take a little bit more time and charge a little bit more because of that. And, Same. 
and everybody that I cut, it's not like they're not hitting me up the day of and trying to sit in my chair. They already know that that's not even a thing. They, they have that respect level where they know that they got to hit me up in advance. They got to secure their time and they hold true to that time. And it took me a few years to develop that. Uh, and I'll tell you real quick, um, for any barbers that are listening, that are trying to build their book and they're in a building process, a, a piece of advice I want to give them is when somebody has a, a one o'clock appointment, okay, and they're not physically sitting in your chair come 115, you need to go outside and actually talk to that person, even if they show up and explain to them that you're not going to service them that day. You're going to reschedule them. And when you reschedule them, it's going to be a few weeks. If you get a cancellation, you could slide them in maybe, but it's not guaranteed. And two reasons why you do that. Number one, you don't want to put that lesser work out there by having to rush your service and try to slam somebody in a shorter amount of time where you're not going to put out good work. Number two, you don't want to try to do that and then run the risk of your next appointment time being late because of somebody else's poor planning. Somebody else was late. Now the next person's late and now your whole day is late. I'd rather reschedule them and not rush. I'd rather reschedule them and be on time for my next appointment. Okay. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a standard that you have to set as an individual barber for your clientele from day one. Absolutely. So that's something that I say, if you want to be the guy who's a, a booking appointments, you can't take a walk in, you can't make people wait. You can't mess around with that time. That time is sacred, you know? And I think that's a, a, a common mistake that people do is they chase the money and they yes. want to squeeze, squeeze everybody in and they're pissing people off by doing that. Now, if you're a walk-in style barber and you're building and you're taking whoever, and there's just a line of people and you like having that pressure of having five guys waiting on you. And maybe one of those guys jumps to another barber cause he's open. You're not really working efficiently in my, in my opinion. Yes. And this is just, this is just something that I've learned. I've done every type of style barbering that you can think of. I've been the walk-in barber. I've been the appointment barber, you know? So I think that's something that uh, is not taught to, yes. to us. I think there's a lack of uh, training when it comes to how to really build your business and schedule appointments and, and how somebody's $5 tip isn't really nothing. But when they send you their friends and family, that's the greatest tip they can give you. Yep. Especially when you're building. Yeah. So I, I definitely wanted to say that on, on your podcast, man, because this is shop talk, baby. Yeah, that's that's major, <laughs> man. That That's something that people need to get. I think I think to add on that, too, I think you get what you pay for. So if you're a client and you're going into a shop that's probably, you know, charged on the low side of the 20s or, you know, whatever it is for your area. Right. Um, you're going to run into more people where the barber is going to squeeze more people in or he told you to come at one. You got there at one. He goes, oh, I got three people ahead of you. The old, old barber tricks. And we've done it, but we moved out of that. And I think yeah. to work like that at this point, you put so much pressure on yourself. Dude, you, have to, wait. you have to cut so many people every day in order to make the same amount of money as someone who's cutting less people, spending more time and doing a, a higher quality work. So I think it's important that as a barber, you develop yourself professionally, get yourself some education yeah. and grow your business. Don't think that like, because if you're doing the squeezing thing, the only thing you can do to get more money 
is do more haircuts. And then what? You're going to go up $2 every two years? It's not a real raise. I honestly, man, uh, I think that, uh, like I said, I'm no different from anybody. I've went through all these things, right? Mm-hmm. I've, worked in, I've worked in the place where I would wake up, I'd go into work. I don't know who the hell I'm cutting that day. Is it slow? Is it busy? I have no idea. And so what happens when it's slow, right? Or what happens when you have five barbers that are not really that busy, or you have a bunch of flat screen TVs with sports and stuff on there, you slow yourself down, you're getting distracted, right? Versus now, I look at my schedule, I already know who I have coming in that day, right? And these are, this is like clockwork. This is like routine, three weeks, four weeks, two weeks. I have some cycles that are on one week. And I know who I have sitting in my chair that day. That's a, libera- that's, a, that's a liberating feeling because you look at your calendar and you're like, oh, yeah, I got so-and-so coming in today, right? And so you know what you're looking at before you even start your day. Yeah. You get, and then when you come in and you're used to cutting the same people, it's like you already know what you're set up for. You know yes. how much money you're going to make. You know who's going to come when and where. And you don't have to think about it. You don't have that pressure of like, yo, I got, I got you next, man. Yo, I got yep. my man, I got my man, and then I got you next, man. Just, just hang out. And then that, how efficient is that? Where people are sitting there for two hours and they haven't even gotten the chair yet. When they could have been doing something else, you know, I always say their time is their time. When they come to see me, they're in the chair. Yes. No, it's very efficient, especially now with the pandemic. You can't have people hanging out waiting for a haircut. You know, it's nothing. I feel like this is a wake-up call for people that weren't doing appointments to, yes. start, doing, to start doing appointments. Yes. You know, I I think too, also, once you get to a certain point where you get yourself out of that, I'll squeeze you in, I'm going to cut 25 people today, you are now, you're paying for my, you're not paying for the haircut anymore, you're paying for my time. Yeah. Because if you don't pay for that time, someone else is going to pay for that time. You need to book your time with me a week in advance or two weeks or however long it is. So I operate off of, this is what 45 minutes of my time is currently worth. You know, it's crazy. Not, this is the haircut and this is the price of my haircut. I don't say, well, he just wanted a two all over, so that's 20 bucks. But if you want a pompadour, that's 30 bucks. A haircut is, my time is what I'm charging for, not the haircut. I feel like the longer you do this career, the more you understand how it works. Yes. And the better you are at working it. Meaning, I have guys that they've got barely any hair, Okay. They take me no time at all. I actually slow the service down yep. to like to shoot the shit with them because that person is going to tip me. That person's going to pay me what I charge. And that person is such an easy haircut that it's no longer about achieving uh, their goal. It's more so I'm spending time with this person. And what's crazy is once you have enough people coming to you, you get to be more picky of who actually sits in your chair. And yes. when you raise your price, it actually dictates the type of people that sit in your chair. So the guy who's super picky, the guy who's an a-hole, the guy who's late, they don't want to pay either. So what happens is when you raise your price, you eliminate those people and you open it up for people that want to pay. Yep. So now it's like, I, at one point I got to the point where I was like, I'm not going to take new people. I want to, I want to, I'm good where I'm at. I'm overwhelmed. I don't want to keep, you know, trying to squeeze people in. I'm going to, I'm good where I'm at. Then I was like, you know what? Let me increase my price. And if people drop off, I'll open up to new people. And what's crazy is the new people come in at a higher price point. They're so grateful and respectful that they're so happy that I'm actually cutting their hair where they're tipping me and paying me better than the people that I have grandfathered in. Yep. Right. And it's like, you know, 
the, I've started to notice that as I increased my price point, that my clientele type started to change where Correct. the people that actually stressed me out no longer come to me. The yep. people that actually I, I think are valuable people that have their own careers and their own, you know, value. Now they're all coming to me, you know, now I'm cutting CEOs. Now I'm cutting business professionals. I'm not cutting the guy who wants the $5 shape up. Right. You know what I mean? And so I think this is something that as you grow in your craft and as you grow year by year as a barber, you start to realize and you start to change the clientele who come to see you. Yes. Um, I'll be honest, man. Some of the best paying clients have the easiest hair. Uh, Absolutely. 100%. And so, you know, I don't chase money. And you know, it's crazy. There's a book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, right? Great book. I got it right over here. I'm I'm, I'm really big on audio books. So I'm a member of like my, yeah, there you go. So that book, I, I never read it. And then I downloaded the audio book and I started listening to it. And I started realizing that I'm already doing a lot of the things that are in that book. Yeah. Because that, that's kind of how I think anyway. Yeah. Right. So it was like reinforcing things that I kind of were thinking about. And it was like, yeah, no wonder I'm different. No wonder I'm not having the same struggles as yes. some other people. Because I give zero fucks. I'm already, I know my worth. I know my value. And if you like it, cool. I'm going to be with you. You're going to know what you get. There's, there's accountability there. there you, yep. you understand where you stand with me. But if not... Say la vie. Who cares? It, my whole thing is I do my business a certain type of way. And I, and I think you and me do business the same way. And I'm not here to be, I am not for everybody. Right. And I also, yes. I'm, I'm aware of the fact that I have a strong personality too. So some people, if you're, I, I'm a very talkative person. I actually, and I, and I think I, I think I get a lot of, I have a super diverse type of clientele, but I think that they're the thing that they all have in common is, um, they like to come in and talk to me yeah. and whether I'm listening to them or they want to know what I'm doing with my podcast or the hair show I just did in Florida. Um, you know, Oh, I saw that video with the guy with the wig on the stage that went on after you, you know, like, and, and they want to, and, and, and I try to always give people some value beyond just the haircut. The conversation is very important to me, Yeah. but I've also cut people where like my coworkers out of town, the guy went to me and I know that personality fit. He's better for that guy. Right. If you're not, I'm not, I'm not going to change up my whole personality to suit somebody else because I have to live with myself at the end of the day. Now, if you're unprofessional, that's different. You should change that up. I'm very professional, but I am who I am. I'm 39 years old. I'm comfortable with myself. That book that you were showing, dude, before I even thought about that book or even listened to it, I had this kind of philosophy in my mind where, you know, uh, I'm not for everybody. And, you know, I have, if, if you're my people, you're my people kind of thing. Right. So, you know, it's, it's kind of those who want to be with you, uh, because of not just the haircut and the technical skills, but just how you operate are your people. Right. And I've learned a few things. Some will, some won't. So what, right. Some will, they'll be down with you. Some won't. Okay. And so what? Meaning the power that you have in yourself where you don't need anything, you're not motivated by anything. Okay. You're not bought. You have your own freedom. You do as you please is the most powerful thing that you can discover about yourself and how to operate 
period. Because when you don't give a fuck, meaning you're not pressured by any outside stress, nothing motivates you, nothing swaying you, you stay genuinely true to who you are. The people that respect that, the people that appreciate that, the people that you actually feed off of will gravitate towards you. As an educator, I had to ask myself a few years ago, it was like two years ago, I told my wife, I said, am I a barber or am I an educator? And I really had to like ask myself that because I wanted to make sure that I was focused on, on one or the other. I didn't want to be split up, right? I'm always going to be a barber. Uh, barbering's in me. Right. But how many barbers are out there? How many educators are out there? And now when I say educators and when I say barbers, I'm not talking about the run of the mill. I'm talking about how many really, really sick barbers are out there? How many really, really sick educators are out there? And if I had to weigh both out, which one am I? And I had no choice but to say educator because I love to speak. I love to present. I love to share. Yeah. And I've been trained in that. So for me, I feel like I'm more dangerous, more valuable as an educator. I have more to offer. I can touch more people and create generations of barbers by being able to do what I do and share that, right? So I felt like educator to me was number one, barber was number two. Barbering is the foundation, but being able to, to deliver that and explain that and help other people grow to me was more valuable. So I stuck to that. And my wife said, you're an educator. She's like, you're an educator. And so when I, when I realized that, I made a shift in my mind to focus more on that. I say that to say this. You ask any of my clients that sit in my chair, I will straight up break down their haircut to them as if they were a student in my class. Yeah. And I'm doing it for two reasons. I'm doing it for number one, I want to walk myself through the motions of, is this actually what I'm supposed to be doing? But I also do it because it reinforces what I'm doing for them to the point where they're like, damn, I feel like I could actually cut hair right now. Yeah. You know? yeah. And, and, and what am I doing really? I'm getting in those reps. I'm actually talking about what I'm doing, rehearsing my, my set, my script and how I would do a class, but I do it all day, every day on my guests. And it could be annoying to some guests. I feel them out. Some of them are into it. Some of them are not. Some of them want to vomit their whole life story on me about what they've got going on. And I'm that ear, that shoulder for them, you know, and I do that. But then some of them actually like it because they feel like I'm serious and they know that what they're going to get is the best that I could possibly deliver. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I practice sometimes my lesson on my guests. I use some of my, my jokes and stuff on my guests and it makes me a better presenter, a better barber educator. It's crazy. I have guys that they like, you know, I have one guy during the, the shutdown that actually signed up to my website for online barber education so that he can learn how to cut his own hair during the shutdown. You know, and he signed up and he's like, dude, I watched your videos. I started fading myself. I bought clippers on Amazon and I started cutting my own hair. And he's like, I, I did an okay job where you can actually take that from here. You know, now yeah. that I'm back. But I, look, people were like, I had one bar. I have, you know, it's crazy too. Kevin Hart said this, and I always like using comics as references. Kevin Hart said, you know, the bigger you become, right? Social media, celebrity, status, whatever. You, you, you're starting to grow where a lot of people have eyes on you, right? The bigger you get, and he's obviously the pinnacle of that. Like the guys in movies, he's selling out arenas, right? He said, the bigger you get, 
the more eyes you're going to have on you. But out of those eyes, you're always going to have dumbasses. You're always going to have fools. You're always going to have people that are negative, right? Out of the hundreds of things that are said to you on a daily basis, positive, why is it that we gravitate towards the few one or two a-holes that are negative, right? And so I would have people hate on me online. I'd have people talk trash about my cuts or just hate on me in general. And I would see comment after comment after comment of good comments, right? Like, you know, liking what I do. Then there'd be the one a-hole that would say something negative. And it's like, the bigger you become, the more people you reach, the more dumbasses you're going to come in contact with. And the more dumbasses are going to, you know, share their voice. I have a lot of barbers that if I get featured on a, a repost page or, or I put out something that does well, that they always have something. There's always one or like yep. two that, that want to say some negative shit, right? I don't get discouraged by that. I don't get, I don't get thrown off by that. I ask myself, all right, is this credible? Like, am I doing, I always say to myself, did I do something wrong? And then nine out of 10 times or 10 out of 10 times, it's, they're just mad because it's not them or they, they don't, they can't wrap their head around. They can't get out of their own way. Yeah. yeah. Where, where they're mad at me for something that they're not doing or whatever the case. And the same thing with clients, right? You get that client that, you know, doesn't really respect your time. Dude, I had, I, I had at one point over 400 clients. Okay. It was out of control. I was working stupid hours and out of all my clients. Okay. And, and you can, you can, relate to this probably because now you're working again right? right we were shut down we stopped we were put on pause we got off the treadmill okay when you got back on and you started bringing people back into your chair how many of those people were super grateful that you were able to cut them again oh how many all, of those, of them. all of them all of them right all of them i've never felt so appreciated in my life every single person that that went without that lacked the haircut, that grew it out, couldn't deal, that got in my chair and they saw themselves actually feel healthier again. Actually yeah. look, at, look at themselves and look normal again when I cut their hair, right? Out of all of those people, I only had one person question my price, question my availability, question, you know, the fact that I can't do his beard right now. Every other person I'm talking about my entire clientele, not only appreciated and was grateful, they threw me more money. Some of them paid yep. me for not even getting services. Yep. Some of them paid me double or triple or whatever on top. I only had one person Same. out of my entire clientele say something that was off the wall, kind of selfish. Yeah. Guess who's not getting in the chair, right? Yeah. Guess who I don't have time for? 100%. Guess, who, guess who has plenty of other chairs he can sit in? <laughs> yeah, and that's that's knowing yourself and valuing yourself. I want to ask you Go ahead. about something else before we wrap up here. Sure. I know we've been rocking. Yeah, we've been rocking, and I want to make <laughs> sure that we don't get cut off on the Zoom recording because I'm not sure if there's a time limit. Bet. One thing I've been really impressed with you uh, the last couple of weeks, because you have a big following, and I, I just got to call it out as I see it, a lot of the big dogs with big followings are afraid to speak about racism. They're afraid to speak up and say anything other than post maybe a generic message. And you've been going harder than just about any other account with a large following I've seen 
and I've talked to you about it and it seems like it's something that's important to you. So yeah. I wanted to get your whole take on uh, where we are right now in terms of racism. If you have any thoughts about racism in the hair industry in particular, um, and just, you know, you know, like how, how you're feeling right now, you, you know, you, you come from a hip hop background. I assume that you've had a lot of contact with people. I don't know what you consider yourself because you're Armenian. Um, so some Armenians don't really consider themselves white, white. Right. And, you know, so, I mean, I'm, I'm Portuguese, so I'm kind of in that I'm white, but it's not like, I'm so, not from Norway white, you know? So, you know, you know, let, how are you feeling right now about this stuff? I'll say a few things and I don't, I don't want to go too crazy with it, but I will say a few things. Um, if you are somebody that is a good person, if you're a good human being, right? You're somebody that actually, you know, my shirt says love is love, right? If you're somebody that, uh, you know, has a conscience, you're somebody that understands the difference between right and wrong, okay? You're not going to try to defend racism. You're not going to try to censor the fact that there is problems in the world right now, okay? You're going to acknowledge that. You're going to highlight that. You're going to speak out against that. And you know what, man? In my personal background, you know, I'm white skin, right? I'm white person. My mom's Irish, you know, which is the whitest you can be. And my dad's Armenian. My dad was born in the United States. My mom wasn't. My mom's first generation. She came here when she was 18. She doesn't even live in the United States. So I have an immigrant family background. So, and I grew up in New Jersey where it was very mixed. In my high school, I had more black people at my lunch table than people have in their entire high school. Okay. So I understand race relations and, and, and the systematic, you know, racism from when I was a kid. And I've been uh, um, friends with police. I've had police clientele, but I've also been victimized by police. And I've also been in the military. So I know what it's like to have the pressure of, you know, making a judgment call in a split second, you know, versus a normal citizen. You know, there was one time where I was in the Navy where I had to draw my weapon on somebody at a, on, on duty where I was seconds from taking somebody's life. And I had to make that judgment call, right? So I understand the pressure of the police. I think there's no black and white. It's a gray area in a lot of ways. I think that there's people that genuinely are voicing their concern or their, their empathy for what's happening. I think there's a lot of people that are insecure that are voicing their insecurities. Mm. I think that there's a lot of people that are just staying quiet because it's a safe place to be. I think there's a lot of brands that are jumping on this as of now, not before, where it's the climate now, so they wanna jump on it now, where they're putting out black people on their pages now because it's yep. you know something to save face and save business and save money. I think there's people that are black that are not saying anything. Okay. So there's so many levels to this. Um, I'm very open person. I have no problems. Like I said, I really am so confident and comfortable in who I am and how I conduct myself where I like the social discourse. I like to have these conversations because I think that it can't be ignored. I think that it should be talked about. I think there should be change. I think it's long overdue. So for me personally, man, uh, I think that we need to get back to the fact of, you know, are we divided or are we unified? Are we, are we humans or are we racists? 
right? Yeah. And if you're defending, you know, police brutality, murder, you're a racist. If you are somebody that, uh, you know, it's cool because you like hip hop to be pro-black or because it's popular now because people are talking about that, how, how genuine are you? You know, a lot of patronizing of, of black people right pandering, now. Pandering, patronizing. Yeah. A lot know. of white people on Facebook yelling at each other to see who's less racist when right. they don't and have any non-white friends. I'll, I'll say this, Stephen. I think that people should do their homework. You know, before you're quick to be so judgmental, and this goes for everybody, Yeah. do a little bit of research. Actually open your mind a little bit more than what you've been taught and dig deeper if you truly care. If you don't care, then fuck it. But if you truly care and you want to be a better human being for humanity, then you know what? Empathize with people that are different than you. Take a look at historic, systematic racism that still exists today and really, you know, pay attention. You know, open your eyes. Yeah. If you're somebody that wants to be ignorant, ignorance is bliss, right? You can't be bothered. You're in your little fucking bubble. Keep doing that. But if you actually are a good human and you want to, you know, make a difference and you want to see your kids grow up in a better world, then speak out, help make change, vote for people, hold motherfuckers accountable, you know? And, and that's where I'm at with it. Yeah. Um, there was a couple of days where I was really freaked out, where I was like just going off. And I'm not the guy that's watching mainstream media. I'm not watching Fox and CNN and all this bullshit. Yeah. I'm, looking, I'm looking up hashtags. I'm seeing people that are actually at these protests on their hashtags, on their feed in real time in over a hundred cities in the United States going crazy and in the world right then and there, not filtered, not media, you know, propaganda, bureaucratic, you know, uh, uh, stuff to support one narrative of the left or the right. Left hand, right hand come November are both slapping us. So what the fuck yes. do we do? Do we vote for Trump and keep him in office for another four years and get slapped by the right hand? Or do we vote for Biden, who's completely incompetent, and I, I'm pretty sure is a racist, and get slapped with the left hand? Yeah. I don't understand how you can be so crazy and radical and say that if you don't vote for me, that you you ain't black. Or do all the antics and crazy, you know, irrational, just unpredictable things that Trump's done in the last four years. Yeah. So uh, we're really at a loss. Until we have a moderate third party that's actually going to get elected, what the fuck do we do? I don't know. You know, you know so it, it, it comes down to choosing the lesser of two evils, which for me would be Biden, but I'm not right. enthused about it. Right. I'm, it's such a hard, it's like by default. It's yeah. not like, it's like, you know what? I don't want Trump four more years, so I'm going to vote Biden. You know, yeah. it's not because Biden's better. It's not because DNC is better. I mean, I think just Trump, this- if, if there's anything you could say for Trump, you know what a piece of shit he is. It's it, you got four years of it, right? You've experienced it. You know so where like, you stand with him. Whereas, do, does anyone ever really feel like they knew where they were going to stand with Hill, with with the Clintons or with Joe listen, Biden? I'm never the guy no. to talk politics. I'm never the guy to divide. I'm never the guy to talk religion. But I'm gonna tell you right now, man. In the beginning of 2020, I really truly thought that it was all over. This is the end of days. This is the shittiest year known to man. What in the hell is happening? And then when all of this happened after George Floyd and the response to what happened to him, because this is not the first time this has happened, right? But there was a shift. When George Floyd got murdered by those assholes, there was a shift throughout the country and the world, okay? And to me, 2020 might be the greatest year of our lives. 
And I, I'm starting to be really coming out of this whole pandemic thing, even though we're not out of it. Mindset wise, I feel like this might be the greatest year of our lives, greatest year in human history. Um, definitely a year that we'll never forget. And it's like, what do we do from this point on? How do we hold our local, state, and federal government, police, legislature, everybody, judicial system accountable? How do we hold them accountable from here on out? Because I'm gonna tell you right now, with cell phones going viral instantly, with police body cams, you can't hide anymore. No. There's no hiding. So the truth will always uh, come to light, right? The, the meek shall inherit the earth. So I'm excited to see what happens. And I'm going to be a part of, you know, the right side. You know, I, I'm, I stand on the side of, you know, humanity. I stand on the side of, you know what, racism's kind of completely fucked up and it has been forever. So wake up. You know, why haven't people realized this already? And to deny it is insane. And to, to follow through and teach that to your kids is even crazier. Yeah. So that I'll leave it with that, you know? I want to I want to state on the record for anyone listening that I am in lockstep with my guest today on his views <laughs> regarding racism and politics and everything else he's talked about today. Yo, this has been a banger of an episode. This is one of my personal favorites. Um, yes. I am going to wrap it up here. But before we jump off, I want to say to everybody, my man, Ryan Mary, who you have heard on the podcast previously, launched a T-shirt uh for the black lives matter movement 100 percent of the proceeds are going to be going to the aclu you can get one at instagram at rmd ryan mary design so just find it on there i put a post up it links to his page you can get it through there rory where can we find you what's next what are we looking for tell every you know give everybody everything they need so they can get in touch with you First off, I'm going to be buying that shirt. Now, thank you for reminding me. And I will be supporting and shouting that out because I thought that was a sick design. Um, so shout out to Ryan. Um, as far as I'm concerned, you can reach me on Instagram. Faded Inc. F-A-D-E-D-I-N-C. Uh, message me. You know, I extend the offer to everybody all the time in all of my classes. Very few people take me up on it. If you need something, you, you have, you know, something you're proud of, you want to tag me, if you have questions about something or, you know, whatever it is, hit me up, direct message me. Uh, definitely check out my online education. I have over a hundred plus videos and growing, and we're going to do something really crazy this year. We're actually going to shift from black and white into full color uh, videos. The reason why I went black and white in the beginning was because I wanted to focus on just the haircut, not the hair color. Now we're going into full color because I want people to really engage with it and, and not be uh, in there and out of there right away. I want to keep, I think color gives people more to see. So I'm going to add color to the videos. So go to FadedDreamStudios.com. You can sign up. It's only $1. Promo code HOME20 because of the pandemic. And then, uh, yeah, if you need anything, you know, I'm on Instagram. I do have a TikTok for fun. <laughs> um, it's kind of silly uh, but yeah just hit me up on Instagram or go to my website fadedreamstudios.com Steven thank you so much for having me on Shop Talk oh yeah man thank you and I will text you we'll get, uh, we'll get all that information again and we'll get it into the show notes this will be up one week from tomorrow so this episode is going to be fresh excellent so I will share get... it's going to be yeah, shared by man. me by him. thank you so much man I want to thank you again and we're signing off Peace. All right, man. Peace.